Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Mirren Gedda. And each week we look at the big stories from the US and what they mean for the rest of the world. So this week we're discussing a question that's become um, a lot more important, I think, in in recent weeks, which is what would a Trump presidency look like? And I have to say, Josh, truthfully, I never thought we'd be discussing this. Yeah, I mean, it seemed uh, unlikely um, at one point. I mean, at one point it seemed unlikely he was even going to be the nominee, but it seems pertinent now. People are starting to cast their postal votes. The polls are quite close. People like Nate Silver, who underestimated Trump during the primaries, are now saying don't underestimate him. This could be like Brexit. Brexit, all the pundits said it wouldn't happen. And then it did. Um, And so it really does seem like it's time to have a serious look about what America would look like under President Trump. Absolutely. And I think what's happened recently in America has really given Trump a big boost. You know, people are angry that Hillary Clinton sort of covered up the fact that she had pneumonia. And then we've seen these um, terrorist attacks in in the US. And that's given, I think, greater weight to Trump's calls to really vet people coming into the US and to really crack down on on terrorism. Absolutely. But aside from a couple of big headline policies, um, there's an extent to which we often don't hear much about the kind of detail of Trump's um, platform in in all of its diversity. Um, And so we thought we'd have a look not just at the big issues, but at some of the stuff that we don't talk about so much and, and really kind of work it through. And I think that's probably enough from us. So let's bring and our guests. Joining us this week, we've got Stacey Hilliard. Um, Stacey is chair of the Nonpartisan American Voices International PAC. Stacey is also uh, the former vice chair of Republicans Abroad UK. And with her is David Hawkins, um, the events chair for American Voices International, the former events chair for Republicans Overseas. And David has provided informal advice to the Trump campaign. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having Thank me. You. So uh, just to begin, um, let's let's see where everyone is before we move on. Stacey, c- could I ask you, have you decided how you'll be voting yet um, in, in this election? Well, I'm what you would describe pretty much as a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. I've worked uh, on Mitt Romney's first gubernatorial campaign. I've worked on uh, congressional campaigns. And for uh, George W. Bush, when he was in the White House, we were helping him with some media stuff when he traveled. So 
the obvious answer is that I'd be voting Republican, but I have to say this year I'm a bit undecided. I know what I'm not doing and that I'm, I'm not going to be casting my ballot for Hillary Clinton, but I'm still undecided as to how I'm going to vote or if I will even vote for the presidential candidate. David, how about you? Because um, am I right in saying you can't vote in this, in this election? I'm actually a British citizen, <clears throat> as you can tell by my accent, um, although I was born on July the 4th, which was excellent timing by my mother. But I think since Donald Trump emerged as the candidate uh, earlier this year, and certainly as since he announced his candidacy to run uh, in the Republican primaries last year, I've followed his campaign and I like what I see. I can see through a lot of the, a lot of the mood music or some of the wall of sound that, that perhaps comes from him that is rhetorical and I can see some of the policies and substance that is there and I think that's what's needed certainly for the Republican Party and certainly for America today. And we'll definitely dig into that um, sort of the underreported aspects of his policies that you know you perhaps um, support and identify with but I think you know let's start first with his with his big headline issues and I think there's there's no issue bigger for him than than immigration so you know if we're talking about a Trump presidency we have to ask the question how likely is it that he's going to build this wall? Because it's had so much support. And we've got a clip now. This is CNN's Fareed Zakaria speaking to Mexico's president, Enrique Peña Nieto, about this issue of who's going to finance the wall. But under no circumstances would Mexico pay for that wall. There is no way that Mexico can pay a wall like that. So what do we think? I mean, uh, that seems fairly categorical, doesn't it? There is going to be a wall. He's going to build uh, a southern barrier. Uh, Donald Trump has, has moved this policy forward since last year and been, been a great advocate. But it's also been a policy of the Republican Party for 20, 30 years, um, is to build that southern barrier. Uh, it's also on record and commented by Hillary Clinton, I think 10 to 15 years ago, about the need to build a southern barrier. Um, so there is going to be a wall. Uh, it's going to cost between 10, uh, 5 to 10 billion US dollars. We'll be paid presumably by the Mexican government, it will be paid by the Mexican government, because uh, Donald Trump is a strong negotiator, and he's going to say, point out to the Mexican government that Mexico, Mexican citizens in the United States send about $23 billion in remittances to Mexico every year. Now, a lot of that is legal and taxes paid on it, but some of that is illegal. Um, and in order then uh, to cover the cost of the wall, uh, the government of Mexico can contribute and pay for that barrier. Uh, otherwise, there'll be uh, a reduction in those remittances that go to Mexico. Well, I think the issue of it, uh, saying that it's going to be paid for by essentially seizing remittances um, or, or heavily taxing them we have to have a system that then actually polices that. And the cost for the wall is not just the actual construction cost. And I think that actually when the realities kick in, the wall is not going to be built. I think we do have a barrier fence. We do have natural barriers. I'm from Texas, a border state. So I understand the issues that come along with immigration, um, particularly illegal immigration, um, and the stresses and strains that it puts on those border states, on the health care, the education systems. But one of the things we have to remember in all of the discussion that we're having is any president, regardless of who they are, has to work with Congress and in order to do this. Now, he could do it through executive order. That would be one way of doing it. If he did that, I doubt the next president would, would actually nullify that and tear down the wall. But who knows? That could happen. Um, but I think that when it comes down to it, the cost is so astronomical and there are other ways to actually create those walls. I was talking to a friend yesterday and he said, you know, as 
as somebody who travels frequently, I come against walls all the time. It might be an immigration officer. It might be a border crossing. It might be um, somebody that I encounter having to show my passport, whether it's to open a bank account or whatever. And I think it's maybe we need to actually look at using smarter policies to do that than maybe just a physical symbolic barrier. The symbolism is important, isn't it? Some of the rhetoric that that, uh, that David mentioned earlier about um you know, what you call the wall of sound, the, 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 some of the signals that Trump sends rather than the specific detail of the policy, some of that is wrapped up in the wall. It's the, all this stuff about impenetrable border wall. That's the kind of stuff that people want to hear, isn't it, Trump voters? They want to hear all this kind of, you know, really tough rhetoric about slamming up a border rather than, you know, yeah, fancy pants, wonkish think, stuff about smart I think it's seen as something barriers. tangible that people can relate with more so than putting in these kind of virtual barriers, which is why people, it resonates with people. I think so. But, you know, the, the Border Patrol Agency in the United States has backed Donald Trump. They came out in favor of him. Uh, you know, and I think that the building a border wall reflects uh, the insecurity in the United States and, and, and that has grown in the last 20, 30 years uh, because of, uh, you know, economic and social and cultural liberalism, which has left a lot of people behind. It's good a lot of very wealthy people, but a lot of people, certainly in the center and the south, have been left behind. Uh, and the wall is symbolic, I think, of that, um, what is interesting was that was that when Trump went to see Nieto in Mexico City, which was you know from Nieto's invitation, and, and Henry Clinton did not go and has not been, uh, you know they, they talked about ways that they could certainly help Mexican community and the Mexicans from from not coming through the border, through the barrier, or for, you know in, into the United States. And there was a very much a shift, I think, in rhetoric in that rhetoric again about how the United States could support Mexico and support you know, poor people in Mexico and, and actually build greater ties between Mexico and the United States. But the thing is, his, his immigration policy in general, I mean, there, there are lots of sort of problematic aspects, I think, to it, because, you know, the wall, as Stacey, you've mentioned, some people have estimated could cost up to uh, $25 billion, for example. And Mexico has said they won't pay for it. And David, I totally hear what you're saying, that there might be a way to make them do so. But then there are other things, like the fact he wants to deport 11 million people. And uh, from a logistical perspective, that's just very, very difficult. You know, I think it's something like you can deport about 400,000 people a year. So how is he going to deport 11 million people? And it just seems like with so much of his immigration policy, and we can come on to talk about what he wants to do to Muslims later, but so much of it just doesn't seem possible. Yeah. And I think it's what people talk about around the dinner table. But when it comes to the realities of enacting it, to deport 11 million people, it's not it's not possible under a four year presidency. The force that you would have to have in place to be able to do that, even though he wants to expand the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, the amount of people you would have to expand that by to be able to do that in addition to the border force and then the actual assistance that they receive from the states, from their National Guard, from their sheriffs, from their uh, different police forces, to be able to police that. Um, that would take up so much time to look for all 11 million illegal immigrants that actually having a smarter policy, which I think is what it would naturally progress into, that says if you commit a crime and you're put in prison, then you're deported. If you're found to be overstaying your visa, you're deported. All of those things that me as an immigrant living here in the UK understand to be a potential threat to my to my security living here, that I know I have to abide by the law, that I cannot receive benefits, that I have to make my own way, I have to pay my taxes, and I can't overstay visas. And 
I think that that's what people are wanting to hear is that if people are found out to, to be doing this, then they will be deported. Uh, certainly the figure of 11 million is a large figure. I don't think that's practical. I think Donald Trump is a practical politician and a practical business person. Uh, I think the policies will, will evolve. I think, uh, you know, when Eisenhower was president, they returned about 365,000 to 400,000 people to Mexico, uh, you know, that there are there are ways to do things that are that are that respect the rule of law, but they're also that are compassionate. Maybe part of the reason Trump's immigration policy seems quite popular um, is there's a whole security angle here as well, um, and uh, he's tied um, certain kind Muslim immigration from certain countries into the U.S. as a possible security risk. And this is his other big immigration policy. He's talking about a temporary ban on Muslim immigration until we sort out, as he puts it, uh, whatever issue there might be with Muslim Americans. And then uh, at some future date, it'll get started back up. And before we talk about this, there's a there's a clip here of uh, Bill O'Reilly, I think, on Fox News, um, often quite Trump sympathetic, but in this case, maybe slightly questioning the policy. All right. Well, how does it help then if you say to the king of Jordan, you and all your people can't come here for a while until I sort it out? Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Egypt, their government is cooperating against ISIS with us. Turkey, their government is letting us land planes there. How is that helpful to ban people from all of those countries from coming here? It doesn't seem to be helpful to defeating the jihad. So... What do we think? How's that helpful? You look like you've got something to say, David. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I think your introduction, when you talked about the uh, the statement he made, I think last December, uh, you know, that I, Donald J. Trump, called for an immediate and effective ban on all Muslims entering the United States until we know what the hell is going on. Uh, th- that's an old statement, and that, that has evolved. I think we then became looking at, uh, you know, targeting... Um, cities and countries where there was an Islamic fundamentalist problem or, you know, radical Islamic terrorism uh, was, was, was prevalent. Uh, and that also would include the Middle East countries, but also possibly have included countries like Germany and France, where there have been a number of Islamic attacks uh, and, and where there needs to be a filtering of those people coming in. Um, I think that's now become a form of, of what we refer to as extreme vetting. You know, one of the things that I really took issue with with the initial comment, I um, mean, even, even some of the ways that the policy has evolved, and I think a lot of uh, Republicans that I know back home and, and uh, kind of independent voters, when they heard that comment that he was proposing a ban on all Muslims, People felt that it was inherently un-American to judge people and ban people based on their religion. This is essentially people came to the U.S. for freedom of religion. Um, The thing that does make America great is its tolerance. That's what stands us out against other people. It is our values. It is our tolerance for different ideas and the allowance of people to have a freedom of speech, a freedom of belief. And so to put in some sort of values test, one, is just impractical and I think unrealistic to be able to exercise that. You have to be able to vet people based on more on an intelligence basis as far as security issues and security threats, looking and sharing security information and intelligence information across borders. I think if Trump had come out and say, we are looking at um, having a ban or a temporary ban on people coming into the country uh, who are in these countries, such as Syria, Afghanistan, um, certain regions of Pakistan, uh, and, and other places where ISIS is a stronghold, then 
I think people would have been much more comfortable with that and it would have been easier to digest. But what, what confuses me um, about Trump's stance on immigration is because we've talked about extreme vetting. Already the US does have very, very strict vetting uh, procedures, particularly when it comes to, say, Syrian refugees. You know, they go through a lot um, in order to get um, access to the US. So I'm not too sure, and perhaps one of you two can enlighten me, what more Trump can do in order to vet them, because they already are vetted so thoroughly. And another point I wanted to bring in, David, you mentioned earlier that Trump might sort of pursue a, a compassionate immigration policy, and you talked about also Eisenhower deporting people back to Mexico. But Eisenhower's policy was not compassionate at all. I mean, some people died during those deportations. Um, so what I failed to see is how Trump can have a policy that is any more extreme and yet manages to also be compassionate. I think we're looking at, uh, you know, there, there are problems with illegal immigration and there are problems with uh, radical Islamic terrorism. Uh, and a, a foundation has to be put into place, which has not been in place for a number of years. Uh, you know, and the wars that we've had in the Middle East have contributed to the threats that the, the, the United States and the West are facing today. Um, I think we need to deal with, uh, with the illegal immigration issue. And then I think we need to move on and focus on, on legal immigration and focus on diversity and inclusion and allowing people to come to the United States who bring great ideas, who bring a fresh approach. You know, the entire Silicon Valley is built on Indian and Chinese uh, kids coming to business schools and help and staying there and building, uh, you know, smart tech firms. But contributing, he wants to stop that. Contributing. He does not want to stop that. He that's, does. That's he wants exact, to make the, exactly the tech visas much more difficult to get. The, no, they on. want to raise the income threshold, just as they've done here in the UK. You raise the income threshold where people who are actually graduates, whether from master's or PhD, no longer actually reach that threshold to be able to stay, so they have to go back. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Since we're touching on the economy, 
this might be a time to slightly move us on to a separate, a, a new policy area. Talking about Trump's economic policy, something he particularly focuses on is international trade. And he's especially focused on China, who he sees as having given Americans a particularly bad deal in recent decades. Um, we've got a clip here where he uses what is a graphic reference to sexual violence to describe what he sees China as having done to America. Because we can't continue to allow China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the greatest theft in the history of the world. So Trump's going to get some people, the best negotiators around the table. They're going to stride in. They're going to tear up the rule book. They're going to get um, better deals, which put America first. How's, how's that going to happen? Can it? There are concerns around having a more protectionist uh, trade stance, you know, looking at are we going to start a trade war with China? How successful is that going to be? What will happen to the currency? Will the currency then be devalued? Will they find a new uh, a new currency to peg themselves to or for the reserves? Uh, and I think there are some concerns around this. And Sorry, I, am, just and to I think you there. You slipped yeah. in there, the, a trade war with China in the middle of a, a slightly drier list. I mean, is that something <laughs> that really is going to happen? That, I mean. Well, I mean, he was talking about what is it, a 25 percent tariff on, on Chinese goods coming into the U.S., um, I think that that would affect a significant proportion of, of U.S. goods and consumer um, aspects when you look at um, all of the things that people buy within the U.S. And if you just walk into Walmart and you can see how many goods are, are made in, tri- in China. Um, we don't have the manufacturing capability that we used to to be able to necessarily keep up with the demand. Um, and if we did reinvest in that, the prices would go up. Um, and there may be some economic backlash from that. There are going to be no trade wars. Uh, and I think the whole approach to protectionism you know, has come from, from you know, the, the Trump supporters and the Trump base, which has expanded massively the last few months, uh, you know, are people you know, across the United States who have suffered because they see jobs being exported to, to Mexico, to China, to other countries. Uh, you know, five million jobs have been lost since two, 2000. Um, but, but I don't think, I think that those, again, those policies have evolved. I think, uh, you know, as a businessman, you go in to, to do negotiation and, and the notion of being unpredictable. He talks about being unpredictable in trade and unpredictable in foreign policy because you don't want to reveal your hand. Uh, you want to have, go in, negotiate and get the best, the best deal that you possibly can. But there isn't going to be a trade war with China and there isn't going to be a trade war with Mexico. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney called China you know, the, the greatest currency manipulator in 2012. Now, no one accused Mitt Romney of wanting to start a trade war. But there seems to be a, a general consensus that if Trump does enact his economic policies, the US will seriously struggle. And obviously, opponents of Trump are saying that it will be devastating in the long term, that there could be, say, a prolonged recession. Other people are saying, who, who support Trump, that there, yes, there will be a dip, but then the US will recover. Yeah, but I don't... I don't think that that's necessarily the case. I think the concern with people is this, you know, the unpredictability that, that David was talking about, that people do need to have some sort of predictability within with the president and their leadership and the style and knowing what they're going to get. Um, even when it comes to negotiations, of course, you want to hold your cards close to your chest uh, and not give away the game. But you do need to, you know, 
let people know that you stand firm on certain things and, and have them actually believe that when you say it. I think from a taxation standpoint, I mean, personally, I think his tax plan to me, uh, the benefits that I would receive and people I know, it, it sounds very good. Um, it sounds something that would allow people to actually start saving and actually be able to to spend some more money and to grow the economy. I um, mean, that's kind of been the Republican uh, approach the past kind of few generations, the last generation or so, that we allow people to actually use their money more wisely. We think that they can spend it better than the government can. Um, but moving forward with uh, the growth, people are suffering. People are looking at saying they're $4,000 worse off now than they were before the recession happened. And so the economic policies is what people feel every day. And that's what people tend to vote on when it comes down to it, is what what is it in their pocketbook? What is it in their bank account? And how does it affect them? There's one other thing that perhaps is worth considering, which is Trump, as we know, has many business arrangements with many foreign entities. And um, it, it just seems likely that these are going to massively affect his economic policies. You know, um, he has, for example, an arrangement with a South Korean company called uh, Daewoo that um, is involved with sort of the nuclear industry. And Trump's just been saying that South Korea should be able to produce its own nuclear weapons. So, I mean, is there not a worry that Trump's foreign policy, his economic relationships abroad might uh, be chosen in a way that will benefit his own organization. But I actually think that that's one of the things that people see as an advantage to him, is that he is a businessman and that he understands the kind of give and take that you have to to have um, in order to do these deals and also to be able to um, have business growth. And so they feel that, okay, well, he understands that. And so that's where I think he gets a pass uh, on some things, probably more so that his relationship um, he gets a pass on with foreign company countries uh, than, say, Hillary Clinton with the Clinton Foundation. Um, there was a real difference of feeling that there was a, a paid-for influence or access uh, by people donating to the foundation to, to gain access um, while she was Secretary of State. Now, when you go into um, office, you do have to um, separate yourselves from your business dealings, even from your pension plan. Um, and if you think about how pension plans are invested, they're invested in foreign companies and foreign um, markets. So uh, people do have to put those into a, a holding um, that they're unable to access or actually be able to, to control. Now, with the Trump organization, it would be much different. It would be going to his children uh, to run the day-to-day -day activities. And I think that's where some of the concern is, is that he would still be quite close to it, but not being uh, actually making the decisions as he is now. But there was an interesting point in what you just said as well, which is that um, the the, uh, the details that Miriam was talking about there, they came out in a Newsweek investigation. They got some decent coverage. Um, and almost, it sounds like we're implying here that to some extent, some of that actually makes Trump look quite good to some of his core base. They see him as someone who can stride around the world doing deals and getting people to do as he as he says, and that maybe that'll that'll make him a, a strong president. In terms yeah, of I think policy. I think it goes beyond his his base. Actually, I think that um, that's one of the appeals to him. This is kind of the anti year uh, globally that people don't want people who are a politician who are the same old thing. Um, that we've had in the past. You know, Hillary Clinton is essentially the incumbent in this race, and usually the incumbent has a huge advantage. But uh, this year it's, um, well, we know what we're getting, and, and we don't really like it. Um, Trump, we don't know what we're getting, but, mm, you know, let's try something new. And seeing some of these places, things where he does have a strong record, uh, people 
people admire that. And I think that it goes beyond just the base uh, when it comes down to his business dealing. We wanted to touch on a bit, um, aside from some of the detail of the policy, um, on how ordinary daily life might look under a Trump presidency. Um, And so one uh, aspect of this does seem to be that if you are someone from one of the minorities that he talks about a lot, uh, notably Mexicans and Muslims, you might be a little bit worried. Uh, we've got a clip um, from uh, a woman called Rose Hamid, who was, uh, she's Muslim, she wears a headscarf, she was uh, expelled from a Trump rally. And the point she's making here is that um, in the rally, uh, people who were being quite nice to her, Trump supporters, maybe disagreed with her, but were shaking her hand. Trump was kind of whipping them up with his rhetoric, and that turned it into quite a hostile environment for her. It was really quite telling of and, and a vivid example of what happens when you start using this hateful rhetoric and how it can incite a crowd where moments ago were very kind to me. Actually, one woman reached over and shook my hand and said, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. So should people, should Muslims, should Mexicans be worried about life under, under Trump? I think the opinion polls that have come up the last few days show that 30% of, of the African-American community and 30% of the uh, uh, Hispanic community are now backing Donald Trump. Uh, those polls have shifted quite considerably the last few weeks. And I think that's because uh, the, the tone since Kellyanne Conway came as, in as campaign manager has softened. And he's been reaching out to uh, you know those two communities, particularly the, the, the African-American community. And every speech that he's giving, you know, he's, re- he's saying, you know, what do you have to lose? You have you know, 56% youth unemployment. Uh, you know, you've been left behind by the Obama administration and by the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, the, the, the governments or the local government in terms of Baltimore and Detroit and South Chicago have, have, have failed to deliver for you. Uh, you know, the, the, the Trump administration, when it comes into, into government, uh, will give people an opportunity uh, that have not been there in the past. Uh, Barack Obama said, I think just yesterday, that he, he was he was on the stump, and he was saying, you know, I expect you, at, uh, the African American community, to to ensure my legacy is is uh, up is upheld uh, by voting for Hillary Clinton. I think that's just you know beyond beyond the pale. I mean, with with respect, and I am obviously not an American. I fail to see how day-to-day life is going to improve for certain groups. You know, Trump uh, frequently throughout the campaign has has been disrespectful of women. And I know he's got these childcare policies, but, uh, you know, I don't see how a man who speaks about women the way that he does will implement policies or benefit women. And I, I just don't see how, for minorities, Trump is really representing them. I think he's paying them lip service. I, I would actually, I would disagree with you on that. I think that I'm... When you look at the policies over consistently under the Democrat uh, administrations, and particularly this one, the African-American community has suffered greatly as far as, as David was talking about, the unemployment rate, particularly the youth unemployment rate. And I I do commend Donald Trump and something that Republicans have, for some reason, have been very bad at being able to reach out to those minority groups, in particular African-American community. And, you know, he just laid it out on the table and he said, look, here's the facts. This is you're suffering from this. Why not give us a try? You know, it can't get it. can't get worse. This is where we are, and let's let's try to get something and that's that's better for you. And that's I think talking about kind of day to day life. Day to day life doesn't generally change, except what changes is how much money's in your bank account and how easily can you get a job. Um, and with the tax policies, that will help people. Um, 
some of the other policies he, he's proposing would potentially target um, inner city youth and helping them to try to get jobs uh, and things of kind of that nature. And so I think he is making an effort to reach out to them. But again, he has to work with Congress to be able to enact these things. Uh, you also made another point there, Stacey, about working within the system that there is. And this is something that's come up time and again in various things we've mentioned. Um, in terms of the actual day-to-day life of President Trump himself, he's going to have to work with uh, with with Congress, as we've said, and with, with, uh, with, with the states and with uh, various politicians at lower levels. How do we think that's going to go? Because he's got he's got various opponents. We've got a clip here of um, Barbara Bush talking about him, and she's one of many senior Republicans to have come out against Trump. I don't know. He's like a, a comedian or like a showman or something. Donald he's not, Trump. Yes. And it's just the whole thing is not was, working with Congress, not working with... That's the way things get done in this country. Truthfully, one of several senior Republicans to to, uh, to do Trump down. We talked about Romney as well, Ryan. Um, how's, is is he going to be able to work with with even a Republican Congress? Look, he, he certainly is, and you know Newt Gingrich is is on the team because Newt has that experience of of being the House Speaker and putting together a contract with America in 1994 uh, and, and, and enacting a number of policies which were incredibly successful. Um, you know, Barbara Bush is great. She's a former First Lady. Uh, she told her, Jeb, you know to stay away from this election cycle. Uh, He didn't listen to that advice and look what happened and he went down in South Carolina. Um, I think uh, people like Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan is is a supporter now of of Trump. Uh, He is the House Speaker. Um, I think they will work very well together. Uh, One of the most sort of, you know, tenuous supporters that you could possibly imagine, though. I was a supporter in in name only. Well, I think it's respecting his office, right, which is as House Speaker. Um, I think they will work well. Paul Ryan has a great pedigree in terms of uh, working for Jack Kemp, which was, and and Jack Kemp was a great pioneer of reaching out to the poor and helping poor communities, particularly African-Americans. What was interesting is after the 2012 election that that Paul Ryan admitted that he hadn't done enough on poverty and enough on excluded groups. So interesting, you know, Donald Trump has come along and I think Donald Trump has been moving the Republican Party to to looking at these these, these excluded groups. Uh, You know, the the convention speech, you know, talked about the LGBTQ community following the shootings in Orlando and that, that, that Trump would be a defender of the LGBTQ community from a foreign and dangerous ideology. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the convention clapped that. And he then said, I'm so happy as a Republican that you clapped that. Now, you know, the Republican platform before Trump uh, was anti-gay, you know, or certainly in some, in a lot of, a lot of areas. Although a lot of, you know, gay men and women have been great uh, Republicans and Republican well, supporters in the past. Well, sorry to cut in. I mean, Trump is still against gay marriage. He's still sticking to that core Republican line. You don't. I don't think gay marriage is necessarily homophobic. I think you no, know, if you have, well, I think you were. I think if you have civil partnerships. Uh, you know, that there's an alternative to, to gay marriage. I think what I understand in the United States is that, that civil partnerships is not there. I, I think that it should be available as it is in Europe. But I think that you don't have to have uh, to oppose gay marriage to be considered homophobic. Uh, and then we're going to look at the Supreme Court. Uh, in May, he suggested 11 candidates. It's important to have a conservative on that Supreme Court um, and because that you know, in terms of, of, of it being the legislature and the judiciary are also as important well, as the executive. That's the key reason Trump will get votes is the Supreme Court, because there's a current vacancy at the moment. Um, people like 
don't want the balance to tip too far to the left. Um, and there's probably another two or three that potentially will come up during uh, whoever is presidency during this next term. Uh, and I think that that, and he knows that, um, and he's mentioned that um, quite openly. Uh, and I think that people will keep that in the back of their mind as well when they're going to vote. But again, it all comes down to working with Congress. I think having Mike Pence as a former governor is useful. He's, um, I, I always see him there as kind of there to play defense. Um, he, he appeals to the base. He's able to, to talk the kind of executive role, uh, speak. And as vice president, you're president of the Senate. So he would have to actually be able to sit there and work with, with the congressional caucuses and the Senate as well. Um, and having Paul Ryan on board, you know, it does take time to do all of these things. They do, the Congress does manage the budget. They control the spending. So it's great to make all these promises, but it has to go through Congress for it to happen. So we've discussed um, a lot of potential policies of Trump's um, during this podcast. Let's imagine um, the results have come in, um, you know, it's November 9th and Trump has become president. I'd love to know from both of you what you would like to see him change first. What law would you like to see him try and push forward first? I'll let David answer first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's the number of, 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 of laws and regulations that I've outlined. I think he's got to get the economy moving. You know, the commitment to, uh, you know, his base who are both, you know, Republican voters in the heartland and also blue-collar Democrats who, who are uh, very redolent of, of the Reagan Democrats who are looking for jobs and looking for hope. Uh, we need to push through uh, reform of the tax code and we need to deregulate and we need to start creating jobs. And that should be his, his first job uh, on, on January 20th. I would agree with, with David that it's going to have to be something that is tangible to people immediately. So when people go to file their taxes, that they, they see the immediate uh, change. And I think regardless of who's elected, that they have a real challenge ahead of them and that whoever is elected, if, there is, if people do not feel there is change and they do not feel it um, at home, they'll be a one-term president regardless of who's elected. So it's still um, the economy stupid in the, in the words of the timeless <laughs> phrase. Um, okay, well, I think that's about all we've got time for. Thanks um, very much for coming. Um, so thanks to our guests for coming along. Uh, thanks to everyone at home for listening. Um, you can find us every Thursday on SoundCloud and iTunes. Or if you can't wait that long, you can pick up a copy of Newsweek Europe or you can go to newsweek.com. Thank you very much. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.